This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Sun Life Ministries with Dan Spader and his team. Here's audio content from Sun Life in their track called Life of Christ Disciple-Making. All right, everyone, we are ready to get going. The other half of the group is still in bed. They may or may not be joining us. My name is Don Roscoe. I am a senior pastor in the state of Michigan, which is a good place to be right now because I live in Nashville, Michigan. So I'm Nashville, Michigan, and Nashville, Tennessee. That is a good place to be because we're not in Orlando. Okay, Orlando's really getting pounded this morning. So we're going to open with prayer and then we'll get going. All right. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you uh, for your son, Jesus, and the fact that he died for us and that we have the opportunity to serve him and to make disciples that will reflect his image and his priorities. So we look forward to you using the truths that we talk about in our lives and our personal ministries to help us to be more effective. We ask this in Christ's name. We all said... Amen. Hey, um, I met some of you. I know some we have senior pastors here. We have uh, people that are lay people working in the area of disciple making, discipleship. So if you're a, a staff pastor, youth pastor, senior pastor, associate pastor, women's pastor, raise your hand. Okay. Those of you that have a real job, in other words, you're a lay person, raise your hand. Very nice to have you with us today. Now, I've worked with Sun Life for 36 years since the ministry started, and Dan Spader began the ministry, and I got connected with Dan, and I have helped him in the area of training and in coaching during that period of time. I was a, I've been a youth pastor for 20 years in one church in Michigan. It was an independent fundamental Baptist church. We were taught to say it that way, with great pride. Um, it was a very historical, traditional church. When I started on staff there, we were about 200 people in a town of 1,400 people. That's pretty good because the church grew from 12, literally, old ladies to 200 people. And in the midst of 10 years of growth, all 12 old ladies died. But there were 200 people left. Our pastor was very, very evangelistic. When I came on staff in 1973, we were 200 people. In the fall of 1976, our church was bigger than the town. We were running over 1,400 people in a town of 1,400 people that tended to get a lot of press. Even the president wrote us a letter. You'd have to go back and see who the presidents were at that time to know that was not necessarily one of the biggest honors you could have. So after about 20 years in that ministry, I decided to plant a church that would be attractive to lost people and particularly young people and young families. So I currently have pastored that church for 23 years, so 43 years in ministry, that 23 years in the current church I'm in, we run that church as you would a high-energy, creative youth ministry. So think about anything you would do in a youth ministry. We do that in our adult congregation because we're not church people. We're trying to reach lost people. So I have a lot of fun. I've, my philosophy has always been if you go to church, you should have fun, especially if you're the pastor. Now, in this smaller town, I've had the opportunity to uh, have both of my children go be in one church all of their life, at least growing up, 
had them both come through my youth ministry. And being in a small town, I've been able to be involved in small town life. And over 30, it's pushing 35 years now, I have coached different sports in our community, both in the public school and in the Christian school sector. And I've coached varsity football now just about 25 years. I coached 21 years, retired. They, they were real nice to me. They inducted me into the Coaches Hall of Fame at that point. I was out for about six, seven years, and I just come back to help the younger staff that's now taken over the program. And because they're all guys that I have coached over the years. So it's a lot of fun to watch a coach say something, walk up to him, and you just go, that's not the way I taught you back in 1992 or whatever. So I have truly learned more about pastoring from coaching than I ever did in any seminar. By working with people on a regular basis and helping shape their lives, you learn skills, you learn techniques that you can bring into the church world. So I always encourage youth pastors and pastors to get involved in their local community if possible. It doesn't matter what age group you coach. Uh, you learn a lot by, by working with children, with teens, and their parents and families. Learn a lot. So if that's at all possible, plus it gives you as a pastor an outside release for tension. None of you experience that in ministry, right? But you also get to make great contacts with lost people. So having said that, we're going to look at five phases that Jesus took his disciples through in order to build a movement. And that's what we're looking at in terms of our church ministry or whatever ministry you may be involved in, creating a movement that reproduces a certain type of product. Does that make sense? And the product is a disciple. Now, both Dan and Doug talked about different aspects of disciple making. We're not going to look at it from a personal viewpoint, like what do you do with another person? We're going to look at it in more of a corporate view. What do you do with a ministry? How do you produce a um, uh, machine, if you will, we could use the word, that produces disciples regularly? Now, being that most of you all from the South, you're very familiar with a pretty successful football program called Alabama. You may not like them, okay, but they, over the last decade, have they been successful in producing a certain product? Okay, so you've got to ask yourself, is it just dumb luck? Now, remember, Lou Saban coached uh, where? LSU, and where, where before that? Yeah, up in Michigan. So it, it's not, okay, uh, it's not just dumb luck. Yeah, yeah, we got one Michigan boy here. Uh, they are very good at producing an end product. That's what we have to do. Now, Doug's pointed out to you the end product of a disciple is somebody who has a Holy Spirit-governed life. Does that make sense? Okay, those of you that were here, let's refresh. What does the HS stand for? What? Holy Spirit? No, Holy Spirit? Dependent. What's the P stand for? Prayerful guidance. The O. Obedient to, okay, obedient to the world, obedient also to a kingdom agenda. God's priorities for their life, not their own life. So we've done P, O, what's the next letter? We're just testing to see if you can spell. W stands for what? Word what? Word-centered life. Okay, then we have another letter. E, which is? Okay, they're a worshiper. Everything they do, they put God first. What's the R stand for? Very good. 
that is the end product of a, the type of person we want to produce. But let's look at how do you get there, okay? And you've got a big sheet of paper. If you did not get one, you need to get one, okay? Does anybody need a sheet of paper to write on? I thought it would be more fun to do it on the whiteboard rather than try to squint at a smaller screen. So I'm going to have you draw some things, and we're going to talk about these. We're going to look at the life and the ministry of Christ. So I'm going to draw some things up here, give you some fill-in stuff, things to write. But when we think about the life and the ministry of Jesus, we have to understand three symbols. In sun life, we use these three major lines to help you to understand the life and the ministry of Christ. This circle here, semicircle, represents his life before ministry. So write small. You're going to have lots of notes. This should stretch across your whole page. And then you can flip it over and take additional notes because we're going to break it all down. This is his life before ministry. This bottom line represents his ministry. How long was his life before ministry? Do you all remember? About 30 years. Okay, Scripture says about, doesn't say the word 30. His ministry, most Bible commentators and people who have studied it, believe it's about three and a half years. Three and a half years. Now, all that we're talking about comes out of our study of a book called Harmony of the Gospels. Dan mentioned this by Thomas Gundry. We love this harmony. There's a wide variety of harmonies on the market. We love it for two reasons. One, there's a very usable, easily understood numbering system. Because a harmony takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, jams it all together, stretches it back out in chronological order from the very first event to the very last event. Does that make sense to you? And the numbering system says, like, here's section number one, which means this is the first event in the life of Christ. Section 50 is the 50th event. Does that make sense? Now, why is that important? Why is a harmony important? Because the Bible tells us we have to walk as Jesus walked. We cannot live life or do ministry like Jesus unless we understand how he did it. And Jesus lived a chronological life just like you and I. He was in a point, a point in time. He was in a given culture. And he took one step after another from birth until his death, just like you and I. So if we're to walk like Jesus, we have to understand how he lived his life, how he did his ministry. So a harmony approach is great. The numbering system really helps you understand that. People always say, what's the name of the book? Tell me the author. That's why you have a camera. Okay, feel free to come up and do this. All right. Now, the second reason we love it, because this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right there, chronologically. But all of that are the essays that help you to understand the culture that Jesus lived in, the time period, and also the, uh, the use of a sequential method. Why is that important? Understanding uh, some of the key components. So it's a valuable book to get. And everything we do in Sun Life is based off from this. So we simply draw these three lines to help you understand his life and his what? His ministry. Now, here's what we have to appreciate. Before Jesus had a ministry, he had a... So did you. And, and you, we laugh about that because we know it's true. And the quality of your life will help or hinder your ministry before you get into it. True? 
I, I, you know, usually with church leaders, we don't even have to debate that issue. Now, I grew up in a Catholic home, never heard about Jesus being a savior at all during the Catholic years because everybody spoke in Latin back then. Any, anybody relate? Okay. That, okay, one person. That's what I grew up with. Heard the name Jesus, never heard that he was a savior. Got out of high school and then I got involved into the drug culture, the anti-war movement of the Vietnam era. And then I lived in a hippie commune with 25 guys and girls. Some of you are going to have to go back, Google hippie to see. I'm not talking hippie like this. I'm talking hippie with long hair. Okay, we ran the drug traffic between Chicago and Detroit, midway in Michigan in a town called Battle Creek. Literally ran the drug traffic at that period. Uh, hippie communes. We shared everything in life. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there came a time when God started his hand in California, of all places, and with the Jesus people began moving from West Coast to East Coast. Great revival broke out. Many pastors in their uh, late 50s up to 70 today, church people, were saved in that movement of God. In that house, 24 of the 25 people were saved within a three-month period of time. I was the last holdout. I was the stubborn one. But when I became a Christian, now the 25 of us, we planted three Christian churches. And today, 40-some years later, half of us are still in full-time Christian ministry. Whatever God did, God really did well. Okay? When we got saved, we took all the drugs that we had, put it in a bonfire, stood around, held hands. I was not saved. I'm watching all these Christian people, and was, they called it the one, the last sniff. Okay, <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars worth of drugs going up. I'm thinking, what in the heck is going on? I just, That's how I got introduced to Jesus, and my life has never been better. But all of you know that if you live a life of sin and, and chaos here, can God still use you? Of course. But Satan can too. All Satan's got to do is throw a memory back into your brain. All he's got to do is whisper. He turns on that little computer and your mind begins to revolve images. That's why it's far better to have your people and your ministry live pure lives because then we reduce the amount of ammunition Satan has to use us here. Don't ever think that, oh, I can live a real life of sin and have a really good effective ministry because I can relate. Better keep them pure, don't you think? Life before ministry can help or can hinder you. Now, when we think in terms of this, I want you at this arrowhead, write the word time, and I want you to write three and one-half years and 42 months. That's how long his ministry was approximately. Up here at this arrow, I want you to write the word impact. The idea of impact. Jesus impacted people, we would say, through relationships, not through programs. He didn't have Sunday school. He didn't have Awana. Amazing that he was effective. He still was. The key for you and I, as we look at our ministry, we all have a date where it's going to end. Would you agree? 43 years has gone by that fast. I always tell my congregation, I'm nearly 100 they laugh a little bit, but they realize that's becoming increasingly true every year. As we spend time, the key is this. Have we made a... And what we have to remember, impact is made primarily through relationships, 
not through programs. Jesus used people relationships. Now, the key word here I would have you write is this. Jesus grew. Read three key words identifying this. As leaders, what we want to think about is this. As you study through the life of Christ and you look at what Jesus did, and this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that much. The first 30 years is that much. That's all the content we know. Now, I've studied this like Doug and Dan for well over uh, three decades. When I study that little portion of Scripture, there are three areas that I see that Jesus grew in that helped him to be effective. We cannot simply say he was God, therefore he was effective. He was a mortal man just like you and I. He had to grow like you and I. True? So, when I look at these three areas, and I've studied these in depth for 30 years, what I've learned as a pastor is this. If I'm going to build a movement of disciples who make disciples, then I have to help prepare people in these three areas. I must make sure my people are growing in three areas if I hope to get them here where they're making a real impact. First area is this. Their spiritual preparedness. Jesus was a product of a Jewish system. By the age of 15, most boys and girls had completely memorized the Torah. Not just Genesis, actually Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They knew the content. They had memorized it. You show me a person in your ministry, and we'll start with your youth and teens, who have the Torah memorized. That was standard practice for a Jewish child. They grew up in a communal system where family, where synagogue, where elders, where village people, I almost say village idiots all the time, where the village people, where the priests all inputted into their life. They considered it an honor to know God's word. If we're going to create a generation of people who are disciples and make disciples, it begins, number one, with their spiritual preparedness. And you and I as leaders have to figure out what does that look like? Do they have to be little Billy Grahams? Do they have to be seminary students to get here? Or do they just have to be rooted in the basics? Does that make sense? What are those basics for your ministry? Now, if I were to study this passage of Scripture with you, I could show you at least four or five basics that I would say are critical to spiritual preparedness to move people forward. And what we found in America, in North America, there's a tremendous spiritual illiteracy. Would you agree? Okay, they don't know how to pray. They don't know the Bible. They own 30 copies, but they don't know it. It's sad, but the Jehovah Witness and Mormons know our Bible better than most of our people. Second area, not only spiritual preparedness, they have to grow in their cultural awareness. Their cultural awareness. Jesus was in an ever-changing culture. When he grew up, he was living in a nation that had been taken over by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Egyptians numerous times, by the Greeks, were now under control by the Romans. But then there had been multiple other groups like the Seleucids and the Parthians and the Idumeans that had lived in that area, had left their language, their money, their road signs, if you will. Jesus lived in the midst of a culture constantly changing. Now, you and I, if you're here and you're 50, 60, has our world changed rapidly? 
But the problem is most Christians are unable to function in the midst of a changing culture. They're scared of it. They're intimidated by it. They don't understand the mindset of the law. That's the world Jesus lived in, and he could function with royalty. He could function with Romans. He could function with high priests, with a common person. He was not intimidated. He wallowed in it. He welcomed it. And what we have to do is train our people not to function in the church, but in the culture around the church. The church has become a subculture within the real culture, and we're no longer effective. We have to take our church and tear the doors down, down, if you would, and move our people out to be the church. As long as we have this box mentality, we'll never make disciples. Because the world changes so quickly, we have lost contact with them. Third area in which they must grow is not only spiritual preparedness, cultural awareness, but personal wholeness. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 40 and verse 52 of that chapter 2, that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and men. Are you familiar? But Luke 2.40 summarizes his first 12 to 13 years. Luke 2.52 summarizes from verse 40, 12 more verses, but that's 18 years. What it shows you is throughout the entirety of his life, Jesus grew. He became a well-rounded individual. And the intriguing thing is, is when you compare the words that are used to describe John the Baptist in the sense that he grew, same seven words used for Jesus, which tells us that Jesus was a man just like John the Baptist, and he had to grow in all areas. What we have to do as pastors is look at a holistic approach to growing our people, not just a Bible spiritual approach. I've learned from coaching that there's more to a kid playing a good game of football than just knowing the plays. I've got to know how that kid's home life is, how his grades are, how his dating life is, um, what his habits are. Uh, Does that make sense to you? I want him well-rounded because if he's suffering in one area, does it not affect their game, and if we have people, of, of, you know, who are living lousy lives physically, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, does that not affect their spiritual life? We have to become holistic and help our people to be whole, well-rounded people. I've learned this just in the time I came out of the drug culture and all of that. But families were pretty normal. Okay. They are so broken and messed up now, and people are so damaged now. For you and I as pastors, we spend a lot of our time just counseling, just trying to restore marriages, relationships. Uh, we've got people in church, they, they go to the same church they haven't talked in years because somebody burnt somebody's apple pie. Okay, Those three areas are critical. Does that make sense to you? So right now, make a mental note. What does that look like in your church? What would you need to change and or begin doing to help your people grow. A, you have to have a target. Those are broad categories. But what does spiritual preparedness look like? And we're preparing them not to be a seminary grad. We're preparing them to function in the real world. What does that look like? What's the next one? Cultural What does that look like for your people? If they're going to go out in the world, what would they have to know? Okay, if I'm recruiting youth leaders, Tony here wants to potentially be a youth leader, or I'm considering him. I would have to sit on a board and say, if he's going to be a uh, helpful youth leader, what would he need to know in terms of youth culture in the world and in our area? 
Make sense? I'd ask him a question like, tell me the five, the five most popular singers in the teen culture today. He would go, Johnny Cash. <laughs> uh, not really relevant. You know, does that make sense to you? So if we're preparing people to work in the culture, shouldn't they know something going into it? Bare minimum? And then help them develop an understanding of the world so that they can go wholeheartedly and not be intimidated. Anyway, there you go. That's what Jesus did. He grew in these three areas. And the people he chose to move with him had similar backgrounds, similar training as what Jesus had in terms of preparation. What Jesus did here, if you want to write something on this, he made a personal investment in order to what? Impact people. How do you make a personal investment? And here's, and I think Doug and Dan and some of the other speakers have said, the vast majority of pastors today have never been what we would call discipled. Would you agree? Never personally. You may have had a mentor for a year going through college or something, but have you had anybody really input into your life? What we've learned is most youth pastors are getting that, but most senior pastors, church leaders, elders, have never experienced it. So when we talk disciple-making, we're trying to create something we've never experienced that's rather tough. It can be done, but it's much tougher. So when we think about personal investment, how did Jesus involve himself in people's lives? Now, what I'm going to teach you here, I'm just going to give, I alliterate everything, by the way. You'll, you'll pick up on that. I have the spiritual gift of aggravation. Some call it alliteration. When I, I was a long-haired hippie, one of the first services I ever went to in a Christian church, you know, barefoot the whole thing. I was an independent fundamental Baptist church. They just eyeballed me. Long hair, you know, the peace patch on the butt, the whole thing. And I walked in, and here's this old, old, old man. He was old 40 years ago. His name was Andrew Telford. You may or may not have heard of him. He's a very famous pastor in Canada. He was, we had brought him into our church, and he's teaching. And everything Andy did, he alliterated. Now, my, I have the type of mind that's very organized, very systematic, and I tend to look for learning hooks. When everything starts with the same letter or ends with the same sound, I can remember that. It may drive you out of your mind. But I don't, I don't really care. Okay, so it's alliteration. So I, I came up to Andy. I said, sir, can you teach me to preach like that? He said, you know, boy. He says, this is called the spiritual gift of aggravation. You'll tick some people off. I said, I don't care. I, I want to learn to teach the Bible. He literally came up to me and went, dear God, give my gift to him. <laughs> I like my wife. Okay, I like my wife. I love my wife. I lust after my wife. I labor for my wife. This is the way I remember. So a lot of what I say will be this. You transition. This is taken from Mark chapter 2, where Jesus encountered a man and he made a huge difference in his life. Personal investment, time. You have to invest time into people. True? Now, we are not like Jesus. I can't walk with you for the next three months, camp underneath the stars. Our culture has changed. So it's not that you have to do everything Jesus did. You have to do it like Jesus. So the question is, how do we spend time with people? You're not going to necessarily camp with them. How do we spend time? Time, touch, talk involves two ways. 
Okay? We have to interact with people, not just speak to people. Is there any any wives here? Have you ever felt your husband talking to you, not with you? Men don't get that. As pastors, as leaders, we have to talk with people, which implies we have to be willing to listen. Another one I use is thoughtfulness. We have to think about people, not just when we want to use them, but what their needs are, how they're doing. We have to stay in touch with them. We have to recognize them. And the last one would be tenderness. People live in a screwed up world, so do we. We have to be more graceful than we need to be legalistic in dealing with people. Does that all help you? That's practicality. If we're going to have a a movement of disciples who make disciples, we have to grow. We have to make a personal investment so that at the end of the road, we can say we've impacted people. Jesus, after three and a half years, we might say had a church of 120. Not very big, is it? Three and a half years isn't bad to have 120. But those people, like Dan said, in 28 years had changed the course of their civilization. They did it without a Bible. They did it without this combination. They didn't even have a whiteboard that they could carry around with them. And they did it with far worse sandals than what I'm wearing. No horse. Maybe a donkey. They had to walk everywhere. By the way, the average Jew in the first century walked 15 to 20 miles a day. They changed the world. Now, this is where I say to all pastors, any church worker, with all the modern conveniences you've got, including multiple copies of the Bible. Now, as a pastor, here's what I say. You can turn the pages of your Bible or turn your Bible on. You see how the world's changed? They didn't even have that option. With all of your Christian upbringing, all of your Christian training, who in the heck have you ever impacted? That's a legitimate question. Jesus had three and a half years. The group he worked with changed their world. What have we changed? Either your church, your youth ministry, your women's group, your home group, or you personally. Definition of insanity is keep doing what you've always done. Expect different results. Okay, here's what we're saying. Let's try a different different way of doing things. Let's do it like Jesus. It worked for him. Make sense? Okay. Take a moment, process, write yourself a note. You can go on the back side, wherever. Based on what you've heard so far, what's God saying to you? Because if you don't have an aha where you write something down, mental note, you're probably going to forget it. What is God saying to you about just everything we've talked about here? Just take a moment to do that. Okay, we're going to just focus right now on this semicircle here. This is called the time of preparation. Time of preparation where Jesus was being prepared for ministry. When Jesus began his ministry, it was as though he was shot out of a cannon. He became a completely different person than what he had been for 30 years. Something had gone on in his life. But I'm convinced of this, that when you study through this section of Scripture, and it's not that much, you see that he had clarified at least five areas of his life. For you and I, the time of preparation for our own life, for the lives of our aspiring disciple-makers, is to clarify five areas. So that as God leads them into ministry... 
they're shot out of a cannon. Does that make sense? Most of us, I'm, in a, I'm a good pastor, stand up, be my role model, never stand close enough to a speaker where he can use you. Okay? Okay, just turn sideways this other way. Now, here's the way most pastors recruit people. I'm thinking, I need a wanna worker. I need a Sunday school teacher. I need somebody to be in the choir. I need somebody to do buildings and grounds. Let's see. Let's see. What's his name? What's Lee? Yeah, yeah. I don't think Lee's doing anything. So watch how we recruit. Hey, I've been praying about this. Okay, notice what I've done. I lied. Okay, and I'm taking his pulse. Is he alive? I can use you. There's no thought about him, where he's... Sit down, buddy. See, there's no thought where he's come from in his life, what his spiritual gifts are, what his passions are. It's just, in our church, we need a warm body. Have you ever thought of recruiting people that way? No. It's far better to grow them in five areas. Now, I showed you in Jesus' area, we're going to help people... Uh, have spiritual preparedness, cultural awareness, okay, and personal wholeness, right? But I want everybody in my church to be aware of five things. Here you go. Number one. The first thing I want them to understand is what is his purpose in life or his mission? Does that make sense? I have to clarify purpose. I have to clarify the church's purpose or my ministry's purpose. I want every Christian in my church to understand their purpose. Why did God create them? Why did God save them? Why does God keep them alive? What does God want me to do? Make sense? Many Christians do not know their purpose. Secondly, oh, and I would, I would add this. Uh, in our four chair material, we often say this. Your purpose is really twofold. Your mission is twofold. It's to know and do the will of the Father and the work of the Father. Jesus talked about doing the will and the work. The will of the Father for Jesus was to come and die on the cross to seek and save that which was lost. That almost rhymed. Okay? The will of the Father in terms of our purpose is to use our life to bring people into a right relationship with God. The work of the Father, Jesus said in John 17, is to create disciples who make disciples. So you want people to clarify their purpose in the sense that I am here to bring people to faith and I am here to reproduce my life. Does that make sense? Got it? Okay. Secondly, we want people to clarify their passion. I'm going to do all of this because I love God and I love people. Not just I have to. Not because the pastor asked me to. Not if I do this, I'll get something in return. My passion is I absolutely love God. The best way I can show my love for God is to say it. Love people. Thirdly, because he wants me to be a disciple maker, I have to be able to understand the end product. What is a disciple? Doug pointed that out, that at bare minimum, a disciple should be motivated and controlled by Holy Spirit what? Power. <clears throat> the end product is somebody like Jesus. Paul said, be followers of me, imitators of me, as I am of Christ. And in many churches, the end product is a good Baptist, a good Presbyterian. It's somebody who's like the pastor. It's somebody who does these 12 things. I never hear Jesus in any of that. 
We have to help people become like Jesus. Not little Bill Hybels or little Rick Warrens or little Andy Stanleys. Okay? We have to, that's why strong Christology is critical to the way we do ministry. The third thing is this, the process. We have to help people understand the process. Okay, if I'm to be a disciple who makes disciples, what is my process? How do I do that? What's my first what? Step. What's my first step? Then what's my second? I call it the Wizard of Oz approach. If you remember the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and the gang were trying to get to where? Emerald City. And see the great and powerful Oz. Okay? That was the big picture. The end of the road. But what was the road they had to take? Yellow Brick Road. That was the step by step. And it's not all fun. There's lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. You see, the Wizard of Oz is... I use two movies repeatedly to do ministry and leadership training. One is The Wizard of Oz because it shows progression, shows danger, shows the importance of camaraderie, teamwork. The other is a movie, you may or may not have seen this, I think it's one of the best movies ever put out for Christian leaders, is What About Bob? You ever seen that? Because, hey, that's what you're dealing with in your church. A lot of little Bobs and Bobettes. Both of those are great training movies. But what's the process? So I use a Wizard of Oz approach. Give them the big picture, but show them their first and next Say it? Step. Thank you. And then what is their plan? How will they do it? How will you do it? Jesus' plan was very simple. His plan was to be relational. His plan was to be missional. His plan was to be intentional. Very simple. The process he used was a five-phase, five-step process. But his plan, the plan that he was going to use to help you become a disciple who makes disciples, I have to be relational with you. I have to be missional. I have to keep you focused on the end of the road. And I have to be very intentional. Which means I have to confront you. I have to challenge you. I have to pray for you. I have to encourage you. I have to release ministry to you. Make sense? It says he began... His ministry about the age of 30. Now, many of us would read that and we think nothing more about it. Do you realize how important the number 30 is in the Bible? Just do a Google search sometimes. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about numbers. But here's just some of the people that were 30 was associated with them. Joseph became second in command of Pharaoh at age, take a guess, 30. Um, the Kohenites... Uh, begin, could only begin working in the tabernacle if you go to Numbers chapter 4 at age 30. And they, and all you have to do is go to Numbers chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, and see the important task that was given to just this clan. You couldn't even do this task until you were 30. You go and you look at King David. He became king at age 30. Ezekiel was called to be a prophet at? John the Baptist, when he began his ministry, was about 30 because he was just six months older than Jesus. Number 30 in Jewish culture, and that's just biblical. You go to the cultural aspect to be an elder, a village elder in Israel back in the day, any guesses on the age? 30. 
At age 12, 13, you went through your, what we would call bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. You became a student or a son or a daughter of the law, which means you're accountable to God. That's age 12 to 13. But the village didn't see you as a mature person until age 30. Because you, you may be accountable to God, you know all the Bible, but do you have any life experience? Not so much. So the age 30 was critical. So when Jesus began his ministry, we can identify that he grew in three areas. He had clarified five things in his life, and he had reached what we would call the magic age, where he was respected. Does that make sense? So you just flip that around and say, what does that mean in your church? Can your people articulate their... Do they have passion? Do they have in their mind what the, what the end product is? And can they assess that in their own life? A lot of churches say, we want our people to be this, 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 or Holy Spirit power. Gah! Can you measure that? Do you have any assessment tool in your ministry? See, that's one thing Sun Life does in our training and coaching, is helps you identify very simply what you want to build into people, but then the beauty is we help you develop assessment tools. doesn't matter... What you can envision, if you can't measure it, you'll probably never produce it. Okay, And then we want our people to uh, have clarified the, the process. How do I become that person? How do I help others? And then what is my game plan? What does that mean in my life? Am I willing to sacrifice my life, elements of my life, to put into play a plan that works? Okay, That's all the, the life of Jesus. Now, if we had to break this down and look at this, we would call this element here phase one. We're going to break his life and ministry into five phases. We then are going to draw lines like this. And we're going to call this phase, wild guess, two. We're going to take this phase, put a dotted line, and call that three, phase four, phase five. Distinct periods of time in which Jesus is working with individuals all with the intent to bring them from where they are to where he wants them to be. What we're going to do here, if you've caught up, you now have the completed chart that in our Sun Life training is the core of everything we do. It helps you understand the life and ministry of Jesus and what he did in particular phases of time. Now, when we think of phase two, this is 18 to 21 months. Now, that's important. Here's what I want you to see. If you take the bigger number, because 21 is the bigger number here, and you just look at his total amount of time in his ministry, which was how many months? 21 is what percent? About half of his ministry. But it's phase two. Now watch this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To lay it out to you, looking from your left to right, 
just as this chart. The first 30 years is that much. Phase two, the first half of his ministry. Did you know that? Time-wise? That's it. Next phase is three and four, has a divided line. I'll tell you why. Is that much? Nine, six to nine months. So you could write that down. I'm going to write that in just a second. Okay? How long? Six to nine months. The last phase, phase five, is 12 to 15 months. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at this and go, hmm, that's interesting to me. And again, most pastors, church leaders, Christians don't know that. That's all there is for 30 years. This is the first half of his ministry. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything it has to say. That's six to nine months. That's the last 12 to 15. That should make you go what, Tony? Hmm. You can say it. It's a biblical word. Okay? Uh, This should tell us something. Now, what really will help you is to understand that this is called everything that Jesus is doing in your life and in the ministry that you're going to do for him is governed by that word. We would say this period is your ministry what? Phase two is your ministry foundations. Building a foundation for ministry in the future. Phase three is your ministry training. Ministry four is, or phase four is your ministry outreach. And this is your ministry. Phase five, multiplication. Everything Jesus is doing in his life and in the lives of others is to get them to accomplish the ministry of being a disciple who makes disciples. Now, as we talk about your church, your women's ministry, your youth ministry, we want to take all of our people and get them here where they're making disciples. Okay, how do we get a movement to do that? We have to prepare people. Then we have to build a foundation. As we build a foundation, people now have enough depth for additional. And the purpose of training is to make disciples, not to do more church stuff. Okay? So the training is no good unless you give them an outreach. And as people have a stronger foundation, more and more training, and are effective in outreach they begin to multiply their efforts in the lives of other people. Okay? Make sense? Okay, any comments, thoughts? As I studied through Scripture, I was pretty amazed when I stumbled upon this. Phase 3 and 4 are like a coin. 
pick up a coin. One coin, how many sides? Heads and tail. You have just heads in a blank side on the other. Is it a valid coin? No. Wouldn't matter if you had tails and no head. Not valid. We think of phase three and four. It's one major phase, but two what? Sides. Just like when the guy came to Jesus and said, tell me the most important commandment. And Jesus said, I will tell you the most important commandment. The first is this. The second is this. Did that make any of you go, what? He asked for one. Jesus said, I'll give you one. Then he gave him. Because it's two sides of the same. The coin is love. Love God in. And when we talk about preparing people to make disciples, you cannot train without giving people outreach. And you can't send them to do outreach unless they've been what? Does that make sense? Now, here's what, as I read through the scriptures for these past 30-some years, here's what I began to notice. There were doorways. Jesus, for 30 years, was in Nazareth. I won't go into all the biblical stuff. I love to teach the biblical nature of first century Israel and Galilee and Nazareth. But Jesus did not start his ministry until God called him to. And all of these doorways are verbal challenges to move from A to B. Does that make sense? For example, if we close this door, we're stuck. Nobody can go from here to the hallway until the door is what? Same with Jesus and his ministry. You don't just get to move because you think you want to move. There has to be a verbal challenge, a verbal call. Jesus' call here was his baptism. Do you remember his baptism? The father said, this is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am. Now, to you and I as Americans, we all think this is what the father's doing in front of John. This is my baby. I just love him. I want you to love my baby too. See, that's very American. That is not Jewish. Three times, and we don't have the time to go into this. In our movement seminar, we do. Three times the Father quotes Old Testament Scripture at that moment. He quotes from the Torah. He quotes from the writings. He quotes from the prophets. Which in a Jewish way of thinking is if a rabbi speaks from those three divisions of Scripture, what he is summarizing this, everything in Scripture says this truth. You with me? Plus, a rabbi used a stringing of pearls method. Think of a, a string. He'd put a pearl on, another pearl, another pearl, another pearl, until all the pearls are there. Now you have a bracelet or a necklace. One truth upon another truth. Make sense? That's how they taught you to memorize. For example, for God so loved the world, you see, that's stringing of pearls. I say the first thing because you've, you've heard it so much, you are able to say the second thing. This is where when I first got saved and I read the Gospels and I read the red words, you know, the really important words, I thought Jesus was dyslexic. I thought he had, was ADD because he never finished a statement. In Sun Life, we say he was a lot like Dan Spader. So Dan, Dan will get on a roll and he'll say half of something, then he'll jump on. That's the way Jesus was. Because in, in the Jewish culture, rabbis taught that way. They'd say half a verse, and you could literally watch your mouth, because you memorized it, right? You would say the rest of the verse. 
This explains why when Jesus said things, the people in the Jewish culture got so wild, crazy against him. You're blaspheming. You read the, no, he didn't. Yeah, but they're reading the rest of the story. They know the, does that make sense to him? Three times the father quotes from heaven. He literally says this, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. From that moment on, Jesus is totally changed. His Father confirms Him. The Holy Spirit anoints Him and leads Him. His life is never the same. He was a Galilean. He was a Nazarite. He was a carpenter. He was somebody's brother and sister. Somebody's son. His whole life flipped. True? You see, when people are prepared, we as leaders have to call them into ministry. Sometimes, if we don't, God's going to do it. Okay, God will. I never had anybody say, you know, Don, I, th- I think you should be a pastor. No, the Holy Spirit led me to that. Okay. <clears throat> so when we talk about growth, either we or the Holy Spirit's going to release somebody into ministry. You and I have to be smart enough to realize when people are are growing in these areas. And sometimes if we have a tight hold on the ministry, we'll stifle them. We'll force them. This is sad. We force some of our best people to leave our ministries to go to other ministries because there they have an opportunity to serve. And a lot of men here have done that with women. You've stifled them. They have the ability to lead, the ability to teach, the ability to nurture. And we, oh, well, it's a man church here. Smack, smack, we say in our church to you. One on the right, one on the left. Get over that male macho us. When God calls somebody in ministry, we ha- we're the gatekeepers, folks. We've got to open the door of opportunity. Does that make sense? So Jesus goes into ministry. Immediately, he starts building a foundation of relationships with people. Kind of like a good politician. Kissing babies, if you will. Shaking everybody's hand. Getting to know as many people as possible. He begins to build a following. A foundation of people who love God, care about others. Does that make sense to you? They're there for long time. But then he opens the door because he here he says things like, hey, uh, come and what? See and follow me. It's all relational. 21 months later, he says this. He opens the door. Follow me. I'll make you. See, the average Christian thinks that happened way back here. That's halfway through his ministry. He never began the training process till he had built a foundation. They then are following him through a time of training and outreach. They're there. They're in, and I'm going to show you in a little bit. They're back and forth, back and forth, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And then two and a half years into his ministry, we come to this point. Between phase four and five. In Luke chapter six, it says Jesus, after a night in prayer, calls all of his disciples to him. And then I liken it unto duck, duck, goose. You ever play that game? Might be a northern game, I don't know. Jesus takes all of his disciples and he walks around and he goes, Take you. How you doing today? Good. I'll take you. You, 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 picks 12. Now, 
It says he calls all of his disciples. So you're all disciples. You're all followers of me, but I only chose 12. Number one, the number 12 to a Jew is a big deal. 12 tribes, 12 sons, 12 all this. They're immediately thinking patriarchs or thinking leadership. But then he uses a word that he's never used before. And it's a word that is so rare in the ancient languages, it was only used on hyper-special occasions. He says, I'm going to call you an apostle. That is a non-English word. We have nothing in our system of thought that even captures the essence of the word. So here's how we, we describe it. Go to your Bible books. The sent ones. Ooh. Does that capture anything? The word literally means ambassador. But not our ambassadors. Where, okay, you gave me a lot of money, uh, and you get the ambassadorship to Louisiana. You gave me a whole lot more money. You get Hawaii. You know, isn't that our good old boy system? Think ambassador like John Adams, like Ben Franklin. Those boys had the power that if they walked into a court back in Europe and they said, hey, we're at war with you, our nation went to war. Does that make sense? Because they so represented the people, the Congress, and the President, they had absolute power. In the biblical sense, that's what an apostle is. It literally means if you see him, you see who? If he speaks, who's speaking? Why, if he gets the power to do the same miracles that I do. There would have been this collective (gasps) when he called them apostles. It's a position of leadership. It happened two and a half years. Now watch what happened. Because he knew what the heck he wanted to do. He was able to gain people and train them to grow them the same way he had grown. You with me? Then he was able, because he had built a relationship with them, he challenged them into a personal uh, time of training training them for the future, to do ministry. Then he moved them in repeatedly to different areas of ministry. And as they proved themselves and had life experience, had maturity, he then raised the ones who were really sharp, we would say, into positions of leadership. For you and I, we invest in people. Help them grow. Help them have a God-centered love a people orientation, a commitment to the cause, and then begin to train them in the skills that they need to reach out and make a difference in other people's lives. And as they develop experience and maturity, we can then designate to them a position of leadership in which now you are free to work as the youth director. You get to be a small group leader. You get to be a Sunday school teacher. You are an apostle. You are a disciple maker in your neighborhood. Does that make sense? We convey authority upon them. And then we stand back, we cheer them on, and we hold them accountable. This is the five phases that Jesus took in his three and a half years as he began his ministry to help grow people, to become world changers. He knew the end product. He had a process and a very specific, easy-to-follow plan. Life on life. Not one hour what I call sound bites. Come to Sunday school. 
Come to church. Come to Bible study. One hour a week. It was life on life. It was highly relational. That's something most pastors are totally unfamiliar with. Why? Because we're program based. Everything revolves around a schedule. We have all these programs to maintain. And if we need a worker, we haven't got time to build a foundation. We just care are they alive. A lot of the time, up until recent five to ten years, we didn't even do background checks, right? We just grabbed people and we got them in. We never thought of growing them up to the point where they could reproduce life on life. Okay, thoughts, comments, questions. Sure. Creates problems. Yep. Yep. Put, and I always say, let's, because I'm a football coach, let's back up and punt. So let's say, what did Jesus do? It's a great place to start. Jesus had the same situation. He had an established, inflexible culture. Many times our culture in our church is that way. He had different races, true. Yeah, that had, that were in there. Within the Jewish Religion, weren't there various different types of Jewish people? Oh, yeah. So did Jesus do it in there or did Jesus do it here? How did he start his ministry? He didn't, he didn't work within the established church. If the church is hostile, if it's different, he found a couple people to invest in. See, whether you're a pastor or not a pastor, can't you invest in a person? Sure you can. That's where you start. You start with a person. And that's what he did. He came out of there. And his boys were not the cream of the crop. They were the leftovers. They were not the religious elite. They were the nobodies. That's who he invested. But they had open hearts. And in time, it was that group that grew. And they swallowed up, if you will, what existed. They changed the world. Yes, in the back. Yep. Yep. If if you have a heart to make disciples, God's going to open doors of opportunities. And oftentimes it's not what you thought it was going to be. So I came into a very inflexible church. Okay. Two years we exploded. Two and a half years exploded. We gained a thousand people. But at that time they were still very inflexible because they were independent fundamental Baptist church. Very program based, very Baptist. So God opened doors for me in the coaching world. He opened doors for me in the Christian school world. I helped plant and start three Christian schools. He opened doors in my own neighborhood. And as your credibility rises in other areas of life, it's amazing. It begins the trickle over effect. If you're faithful, God always opens doors. It just may not be the door that you originally thought you wanted to go through. Okay? Now, I've got like three more pages of notes, and these are just bare minimum notes that I'm not going to cover in the next 10 minutes because I would break down every one of these phases here and show you what he did and what that means for your life. But hopefully you see the process that I have to find people and help them to put an O there, grow. Now, as a pastor, I'm very practical. This is what I've learned from coaching various sports. Um, if I'm going to look at somebody in my congregation, male, female, black, white, doesn't matter to me, old, young, uh, traditional, stagnant, or excited, I'm going to look. I use body parts. Watch this. I'm going to find out what's in there. What are they? What do they think about God? What do they think about people? What do they think about uh, uh, the Bible, spiritual truths? Then I'm going to move here to their 
because I alliterate, it's all H's. Okay, it's, I'm going to find out how they feel about God, about the Bible, about people, etc. Does that make sense? I'm going to explore their emotional side. Then I'm going to go to their, their hands, in terms of their hands. What skills do you have? What skills do you need to be an effective disciple? See, the same thing I do in coaching. Isn't that what you do in coaching? Find out what you know about the game of football. Are you willing to sacrifice and play the game of football? Do you even know what a football is? Can you throw one? Can you block? Can you? Ta- Does that make sense? And then I look at their heels. Who do you make your relationships with? Where do you go? Where do you spend your time? What are your priorities? Who are your the people in your life? So I just ask you a question. Hey, if you had an, an hour to yourself and you can't use family here, who would you hang out with and why? And what I want to hear is, you know, I want to hang out with this person because they're a great Christian role model and they're a disciple. Oh, I want to hang out, hang out with Bob because Bob really can chug a beer. Hmm, I learned something about him, didn't I? So the, as a youth pastor, as a pastor, as a coach, I, I just, as I ask questions, I just go through the motions. Last thing is I just draw a circle around them and I say, tell me about your habits. So I start with their head, their heart, their hands, their heels. Who do you run with? Where do you go? What are your prayers? Tell me about your habits in life. What are things you like to do? Somewhere in there I would like to think, you know, I really like reading my Bible. Wouldn't that be nice to hear from a Christian occasionally? As opposed to, hey, blacklist is on. You know, uh, we have to help people grow. I know what I'm looking for. As a coach, I know what I'm looking for. As a pastor, I know what I'm looking for. And then if you need help, we give you help to grow. But they don't have to be mature. Aren't you glad God doesn't want you perfect before he can use you? I just want you to have the basics. We all learn in sports or in anything in life, You generally you become good because you've learned in process. Not because anybody here ever go to college and then get a secular job? The rest of the people that work that secular job, do they really care about your college degree? They laugh at you. Okay, because you don't have any experience yet. Okay, you don't have to be perfect with a college degree for God to use you. You just got to have the basics. Then hire me in and give me an opportunity to be trained, to reach out, to lead others. Okay, thoughts, comments? Nazarene. Yep. Sure, yeah. Okay, if I said Nazarene, I apologize. Nazarene. Not a Baptist. Nazarene. Uh, no. No. Yep. This is the life of Christ. Yep. Yep. Because a person here in this growth period here, in relational period, could in three months be ready to go. Somebody else, they may have sat in the church stagnant for 30 years themselves. So you have a lot of undoing to do. But once God begins that spark in someone's life, it goes pretty quick. You have to figure out, is there a spark? Okay. Yeah, like we have to grow them. Then we have to train them to reach out. We say we train them in peer care, peer share, how to care for people in the church, how to share with people outside of the church. And that's a lot of the other stuff I've got. Then give them multiple opportunities. And this is what I was going to draw. Let's see. Let's grab a color here. We call it the six fishing trips. Just because he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So six different times we see Jesus taking his boys out fishing for people. 
See these dotted lines? Those are doors of opportunity that Jesus takes them out on. Six different groups of people, six different locations. Why? He's preparing them for further down the road when they have to minister on their own. And once He places them into leadership and actually trains them for leadership here, this is the door of apostles here. This is when He says you must stay in Jerusalem until you're empowered. Remember that? You can't just run out of here willy-nilly. I love that phrase. Willy-nilly. You have to wait till the Holy Spirit opens the gate. And then you go bonkers. Then you go where He leads you. Everything from that point on, the Holy Spirit's leading you. Again, the dotted line represents doors of opportunity. It's kind of like you choose. Jesus chose. But what He's doing is giving a wide variety of ministry opportunities. Now, this is all part of our movement seminar that if you go online, sunlife.com, you go under um, B, begin and build. Okay, B, begin, build. Underneath the begin, you can go there under training components and see the movement seminar. We would be glad to uh, let you know when those are, maybe one in your area, or we would come to your church and train your leadership. If you think of the four chairs, that is for everybody in your church. The movement is for what we call worker and leader level. The average pew sitter is not going to give you eight hours to be trained in the life of Christ. But if you, some of your churches can pair up, do things like that together. Um, if I can do this, my name is Don Roscoe. My email is this. If you want to know more about Sun Life, how that can help you personally and your church, don at gc3.org. I will get back with you in a heartbeat. Okay? Other thoughts, comments? Yes, sir. Both then. There's no given percentage. Ministry happens anywhere and everywhere, if that makes sense to you. All right. Um, two more minutes. Any other questions? Yes. Um, see me afterwards, and uh, want to introduce a couple of people to you. This may help. Gene, come up here if you would, hon. And then Dino. Uh, this is Dean Plumley. Uh, he's one of the Sun Life leadership guys. He he is oftentimes at our book table, so you could stop and see him, um, and ask for references if you're a lady. This is Jean Milliken. She has been on staff with Sun Life in the past. She has taken a lot of the Sun Life training, uh, applied it for women, women ministry, and women in ministry. I think I covered it all. She would be glad if you're female to talk with you, but you don't have to be female to talk with her. Okay? But that is her niche, her area of expertise. Okay? So she is always interested in connecting with women and helping women be more effective in ministry. All right, any other comments, thoughts? All right. Tonight is my homecoming game. I am not there. So we're going to pray as we go on to the field. Father, thank you for the men and women that are here. You have given us passion. You have given us desire. You've instilled into us a love for your son and a love for people. With a little bit of training we've got, with a playbook you've given us, the Bible, we want to leave this conference, go out of there and make a heck of a difference. We want to change somebody, change something 
change our world. We don't want to walk out of here just being melbatose, weak need, wimpy Christians. Help us to be world changers. And let us play the game with passion and may they drag our body off the field of life, having made a difference. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. See ya. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. This audio was adapted from the original presentation. Not all live interactions are included. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.